Ready for the word now. All right, turn to Galatians chapter uh, 4. We're going to pick up with verse 6 and read down to verse 11. And so let's stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature were not gods. But now after you've known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. Let's pray over our meal. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We're going to receive it today, and we're going to be nourished by it. Holy Spirit, we call upon you again as the divine teacher to anoint the eyes, ears, and heart of each person that's listening. Open them by the gift of your grace and cause them to see, hear, and understand what's being said. Father, I thank you that you're speaking to your children and they're walking with exactly what they need. And only you can do this miracle. I believe it's happening right now in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. On your way down, just high-five somebody. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's a good day. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. If the devil ever makes a day, you can grumble, gripe, and complain, but he hasn't made a single one of them. So, all right. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Paul's talking under religion, under the law, you were slaves, not sons. And so he brought out that the, that the law was a guardian, was a tutor, uh, sent to watch over Israel, to discipline them, to show them the standards by which they must meet. And none of them can meet it. So the law was to show them their need of Jesus and deliver them over to the Lord. But once you accept the Savior, guess what? You're born of God, but you also become a son of God. Now, is, a, is being a son of God a gender? No. no, no. What is it? It's a position. And so every believer has been set into a position of sonship. And so, ladies, if you can be a son, I can be a bride of Christ. I don't got the high heels. That's all right. How do you guys do that? I don't know. Anyhow. And because your sons, because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Look at the word sent forth. It's a Greek word, which means to send forth as an apostle. And this Greek word was used of Jesus in verse 4, that the father sent Jesus to the earth as an apostle a delegated one with authority on a mission, and that was salvation. And so, but here it says that God has sent forth the spirit of his son. And so the Holy Spirit's a delegate, a, a commissioned individual coming to minister to us. And so Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the two great missionaries sent from heaven to the earth to bring back sons back to the Father. And so he's, the Holy Spirit's called the Spirit of His Son. Say, Spirit of His Son. The Spirit of His Son. And so this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's also called the Spirit of the Father. 
And so both the Father and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit in their place on the earth. Look in John chapter 15, look at verse 26. Both the Father and Jesus sent and delegated the Holy Spirit to be here. Jesus has already finished his course, but the Holy Spirit's still here fulfilling his. Look at John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, tell someone you need help. Now tell someone else you really need help. See, he's called the helper. And in this dispensation, you're not left without help. And so let me say, the Holy Spirit helps some Christians a whole lot more than others. Oh, he does not. Well, wait a second. Some Christians depend and call upon the Holy Spirit a lot more than others. Look at the word helper. It's also in the King James Comforter. The Greek word paraclete, not parakeet. Paraclete. Paraclete means one called alongside to help you. And so the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He's not going to come and actually take over your life. He's someone that you need to call upon to help you. And he wants to help you in everything because you need help with everything. Especially men. Believe that. Amen. In this verse, you see the Trinity. Well, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Yes, but the concept in the doctrine is. And in this verse, you see all three members of the Godhead in this verse. Let's read the verse again. It says, and because your son's God, that's God the Father, sent forth the spirit of his son, that's the Holy Spirit, into our hearts. And the son is mentioned here, that's Jesus. So the Trinity's in this verse. And so he was sent, the Holy Spirit was sent into where? Your hearts. What is the heart of man? The heart of man is the inward man. And the inward man, your inward man is your spirit that has a soul. And so you have to determine by scriptural context, is this speaking of your soul part of your heart or your spirit side of your heart? So in context, the Holy Spirit being sent in our heart, what part of your heart was he sent into? Your spirit man. Now it's good to have the Holy Spirit in your mind. But first, he has to have a beachhead in your spirit before he can affect your mind. And so the Holy Spirit has been sent into your spirit, joined to your spirit, and is infusing the life and nature of your Father inside you. The Holy Spirit imparts the nature of our Father. Baby got new genes. And so you have the makeup of your Father. The family genetics are inside your spirit. You're no longer part of the Adams family. You believed upon Christ. And, and you got into Christ. And now you have the, the genetic makeup of your fam, the family of God. So when we return to the law, you're actually going back and living like the old man in the power of your flesh. So your flesh has never got born again. I'm talking about your flesh has never been born again. Your flesh is the same flesh you had before you were saved, and your flesh is no better than an unbeliever's flesh. Now, you're born again spiritually that an unbeliever doesn't have, but you have the same flesh, so you can live out of your flesh. And when you get into legalism, you get into getting out of the power and the, the life of, of, that's in your spirit, and you're just living in your flesh. And your own resources trying to perform for God. To become acceptable. And when you do that, you're living like the old man. Tell someone, don't live like that old man. And you're not living out as the new man in your spirit. 
And so the Holy Spirit was sent into our hearts crying out, what? Abba, Father. Now the Holy Spirit actually does not cry out, Abba, Father. He's enabling us to cry out. Not only gives us the ability to do that, but the right to do it. Because he imparts sonship to us. Let's, let's show you that we are the one that cries out, Abba, Father. Look at a sister verse in Romans 8. Look at verse 15. Romans 8, 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again, praise the Lord, to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. That's sonship. The word adoption in the Greek means son placing. Literally, son placing. So when you accepted Jesus, you were born of God, but you were also placed as a status as a son. The same status Jesus has has been given to you as a son. You're not God. Tell someone you're not God. <laughs> Tell someone else you never will be. Stop trying. You're a partaker of the divine nature through Jesus on the inside of you. I partook of breakfast, but I'm not my breakfast. I'm one big piece of bacon. We cry out, Abba, Father. Abba. Look at the word Abba. It's, it is an Aramaic word. The, the New Testament was written in Greek, the whole Testament in Hebrew. But there are some words in Aramaic in the Gospels. Jesus uses, or this is used, that Jesus actually called his father Abba. We're going to see where it was that he did that. But it's the Aramaic word. And it's a very intimate word. It's almost the best translated as Papa or Daddy. See, some of you have a very uncomfortable place. You know, he's God or, yeah, I can call him Father. But Papa and Daddy, I can't go there. But it's available for you to go there. And, and if you don't have that experience of that much intimacy with God, it's not on his side. It's on our side. That we haven't embraced that relationship with God. And so uh, this word Abba is only used three times in the New Testament. One in the gospel where Jesus used it, one in Romans, and one in Galatians. So this word is used three times in the New Testament. So it's not the primary word used for the Father, but it is a word used for the Father. So Jesus used this word of intimacy in prayer. I want you to see but what context, because we only have it recorded one time that he used it. But what context in prayer was it? Look in Matthew, or look, I'm sorry, in Mark 14, look at verse 36. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the darkest time of temptation and trial that Jesus had faced up until this time. He had faced temptations in the wilderness and throughout his ministry. He had tasted the trials of the enemy and from men and from the Pharisees and Sadducees. But this is the deepest, darkest trial that Jesus had ever faced where he had to come to a decision, will I take on the sin of humanity and be cut off from my Father from eternity? So intense was this struggle. He was bleeding, sweats, uh, sweat, drops of blood from his sweat. And in the midst of the agony of the worst trial of his life, he calls his Father Abba. Mark 14, look at verse 36. It says in 
Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. What you will. And, and, he, and in the deepest part, in the biggest, darkest trial of his life, he said, Abba, Daddy, Papa, Papa. Nothing touches the heart of a father as when their small child is in hurting and they're in pain and they're crying out, Daddy, Daddy, Papa, help me, Papa. And that's what he was crying out in agony. We need to know and call upon the deep love of our Father in our darkest moments. In the most painful moments of our life, we need to cry out, Papa, Daddy, help me. But we need to have balance in this. I believe in balance. I keep my bubble in the middle. One area that we need balance in is in our view of God. Because we get into a ditch, one side or the other. We're, it's all intimacy. It's daddy, papa this, papa this, daddy this. And that's the only revelation that we have of God. It's a very intimate relationship. But then you have to realize that your papa and daddy is almighty God. And that we have reverence for him and deep awe of him. And there's a balance between that. And I think if you came from a healthy home with a healthy father... You have the aspect, most of the time, there was great intimacy with your dad. There's something wrong that every time you came to your dad, you walked in slowly and said, Oh, holy, holy father that dwells on the sofa between the two lampstands. There's something wrong. No, there should be an intimacy but you know also when you're off about to get into stupid. See, see, the God is a God that loves you so much he'll correct you. And, you. and a good father will love you but also bring correction. And all of a sudden the voice changes. Yes, sir. There's a reverence for your father. See, John, the disciple John, had such an intimacy with Jesus on the Last Supper, he, he was felt so comfortable, he laid his head upon the chest of Jesus. But the same John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 17, when he saw Jesus in the fullness of his glory, he fell slain as dead before him in awe. We need a balance in our relationship with God. Verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, praise the Lord, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir of God through Christ. Look at this word slave. Under the law, people were slaves. The master-slave relationship deals only with performance. It's the only thing a slave-master relationship is built on is performance. There is no relationship in a slave-master relationship at all. There's never a time... When a master said to a slave, oh, you come here, you, come here, you. Mm -mm. Did you do what I said to do? You didn't do it. Punishment. Performance. There was, there was no birthday parties given to slaves. But under grace, and when you become a son of God, the father always wants to celebrate you. 
Just like in the prodigal son, when the son came back, he threw a party. Woo, my son is back. And every time you come into the throne room, woohoo, they're here. Hallelujah. Your father feels that way about you. And if you don't understand that or feel that, or you don't feel celebrated, it's on your side, not his side. You can enjoy your status as a son because Jesus was sacrificed for you, just like the fatted calf was sacrificed for the young son to have a robe of sonship and the ring and the shoes. And so if you're a son, actually the Greek says since you're a son, you're an heir of God through Christ. Say, I'm an heir of God. Heir of God. What's an heir? It's one that has an inheritance. Christ is the heir of God. He has the inheritance of God. He's God's firstborn. But when you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you entered into him, you were joined to him, and now he shares his firstborn status with you. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that we're the church of the firstborn. You have firstborn status. And so a lot of Christians are living like a slave, but, they aren't, but God sees them in a firstborn status. When you got saved, you got an upgrade. Amen. You ever been in, in coach, flying coach, and all of a sudden, oh, there's a seat open, you're upgraded to first class. Tell someone you've been upgraded to first class. Where you're treated, God wants to treat you first class. You know, they treat you a little bit different in first class than in coach. Just a little bit. And there's more space, more comfortable, more freedom. And you get to eat and drink higher, partake of higher things when you're first class. See, if you're not, if you're not feeling, you're not experiencing first class, it's on your side, not his side. You need to upgrade in your thoughts to first class. Romans 8, look at verse 17. You're an heir of God. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Look at the word joint heirs. It's co-heirs. Co-equal sharing. How does the Father treat Jesus? That's how he wants to treat you. If you're not experiencing the level that Jesus is experiencing, that's on your side, not his side. The law makes receiving from God out of your reach. But grace places your inheritance into your hands. But, but, what, but what does it say? Finish the verse. If a son, then an heir of God... Through, through what? Go back. Therefore you're a son, no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Don't leave Jesus out of it. Do you know your flesh likes to use religious terms? It loves to be religious, but it'll always leave Jesus out of it. I'm the righteousness of God. Hold on a second. No, you're not. You're the righteousness of God through Christ. See, you don't have your own covenant with God. You don't have your own righteousness and holiness and priesthood and sonship just because you and God have a thing going on. 
No, it's because you accepted Jesus and you were born again in him and you were joined to him and he shares his status and who he is and what he has with you. You're a king because he's a king. You're a Lord because he's a Lord. You're holy because he's holy. You're righteous because he's righteous. Tell someone, don't leave Jesus out of it. Verse 8 says, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those who, which by nature are not gods. Up until now, Paul had been talking about the Jews, and Paul including himself in the Jewish experience from his past, and talking about their religion that he was in. He came out of religion. And, um, and, and, and Paul, up until this time, Paul had been using the word we because he was a Jew and he was talking about the Jewish nation. But now Paul switches and starts bringing the Galatians back to where they came from and their history in religion. And he switches from the word we to you. But then indeed, which you did not, but, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. He brings them back to their experience as heathen. I think it's important from time to time that we remember back when we were heathen. You used to be heathen. You used to be crazy. Now, some of you still got a little crazy in you. That's in your soul. But he's delivering you from crazy. Paul brings us back to remembrance of their prior life. I think we need to sometimes go back. Where were we when Jesus found us? Would you like to go back? The Galatians, we were about to go back. They were going to trade in grace and a relationship with Jesus Christ for religion. They came out of a religion, and now they're going to trade that religion and, and grace for another religion. And we're going to talk about how they're similar with religion. And so Paul says, when you did not know God, the only, the only way you can know God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to reveal the Father, and the Spirit reveals Christ. In religion, you can only know about God. In religion. You only know about God. You can't know God. Big difference. Knowing about God and knowing God in a relationship. And so religion has no relationship to it. It's rituals, observances, sacrifices, but no relationship. That's religion. And, and I don't care which religion of the world you look at. It has rites, it has ceremonies, it has observances, it has rituals, it has dogma, but it has no relationship. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every other religion, you take the founder out of it, you still have the religion. You still have the dogma, you still have the rites and the ceremonies, and you have all this stuff. You take Christ out of Christianity, and you destroy it. Because it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It says, you serve those by which nature are not gods. The various gods of the heathen were worshipped by rituals and sacrifice. There was no relationship and there was no fulfillment. The Jews worshipped by rituals, observances, and sacrifices. There was no relationship and there was no fulfillment. Let me tell you 
what, what religion is. Religion is an outward service to where you're performing, but there's no relationship and there's no fulfillment. What, the, what is fulfilling to a human? Relationship. Relationship. I have a question for you today. Well, I'm not in any of this, but let me ask you a question. Are you fulfilled? That's good. Are you fulfilled? If you're not fulfilled, well, it's my boss. I have a crazy boss. Or I have this, you know, and, you know, and my kids and my spouse and all this other stuff. No, no, no. The only, the root of you being unfulfilled is you're not having the relationship that you need. And you've got into observances, rituals, ceremonies. You're getting into the outward form of what religion is. But you're not being satisfied by relationship. And it says you served, that means perform a slave service, to gods that were not by nature gods. The heathen worshiped gods of wood, stone, and metal that believed they governed the outward world that would bless them. And so, do you know really what they were worshiping? Demons. Demons. Look at verse 9. But now, say but now. I love the holy butts of the Bible. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again, say again, again. to be in bondage. Yeah. Look at the word known after you have known God. The word known is a Greek word which means to have a progressive experiential knowledge based on relationship. You entered into a relationship. How did you enter into a relationship? God cannot be known through religion knowing God comes through a relationship that comes by birth. How did you enter into a relationship with your father and mother? By birth. How do you actually come into a relationship with God? You have to be born again. Those that are unbelievers in religion cannot know God in relationship. They know about God. And so, but now, after you have known God, but I love this next phrase, but rather, more importantly, you're known by God. Say, I'm known by God. If you're born again, if you're not, we'll hook you up. If you're born again, you've been born as a child of God, and God knows you. He knows your name. He knows your foot size. He knows your address. He knows your phone number. He knows your hair, the number of hair you have on your head, and you keep him busy with counting. God only knows those that belong to him by the new birth and relationship. Look in 2 Timothy 2.19. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God. God's foundation is solid. And it's a foundation of grace. And the finished work of Jesus is solid. But it has a seal that has two sides to it. And there's things written on either side. The first side says, the Lord knows those who are his. 
See, I can only see your outward. I can see you come to church with a smile on your face, with a Bible in your hand, saying amen, hallelujah, jumping around. I can just see on there and take it, well, I take it you're a Christian. But I can't see your spirit. And a Christian means born again. You ever heard born again Christian? You just said the same thing twice. You're not a true Christian unless you're born again. And so God only can see the spirit. God knows those that are born again. From God's side. But if you want to make it without a doubt that other people can know, flip around the other side because there's something else written on the other side. The other side says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you have Christians not departing from iniquity, I doubt you are his. God does not know unbelievers in relationship. I don't care what Facebook prophets are telling you. There's going to be a day where people are going to come up to Jesus in Matthew 7. Look at verse 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. You know, just because people say Lord, Lord doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't mean they're born again. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Well, do you know the seven sons of Stephen weren't born again and they were casting a spirit out? No, they got beat up. I wouldn't recommend it. Just an aside, that's a wild story. That demon, one demon, beat up seven guys, stripped them all naked. I mean, and you had to do it one by one. They couldn't do it all at once. So, okay, so, so the first one got beat up and stripped, and the second one got beat up and stripped. If I was the seventh guy, I'd say, I'm out of here. But they all stood in line. At least the sixth guy saying, hey, I see my future. I'm out of here. But they were brothers. They were committed to the end. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then he will declare to them, oh, I'm so afraid, Pastor, I'm going to lose my salvation. I'm going to lose. The devils use this verse to Christians and put them in the same asylums. But, you're don't, you're, but they don't read what it says. You get spiritual dyslexia and you don't read what Jesus said. Read what he said. What did he say? He said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Well, I'm so afraid. I'm a Christian. I'm afraid. I'm going to miss it. And I'm going to be, he's going to say, depart from me, you and worker of iniquity. No, no, hold on. This verse says, I never knew you. These are unbelievers that are religious. How precious is it to be known by God? This is an intimate term of personal care. No matter how much we know of God, it's not as well as much as God knows us. Matter of fact, God knows you better than you know you. Because you know all your faults and failures and all this stuff. I mean, he goes deeper than that. He knows how righteous you are in Christ Jesus. He knows who he's, he's called you to be in the new birth. He sees you at the core of your spiritual being in Christ, and sometimes you don't go that deep. You just go to your past and, and what your flesh is doing and the crazy that you were involved in. But God looks past your crazy and sees himself. 
Jesus knows all his sheep by name. The Lord knows your name. Look at John 10, look at verse 3, it's in the red. Are you his sheep today? Well, there's a test to prove it. Go back. So you couldn't do that if you weren't a sheep. Before that, you were a pig. You went. John 10, look at verse 3. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. Well, I just don't hear God. Well, he says you do. Well, I don't. Jesus says you do. Well, I don't. Well, let me see. Am I going to believe Jesus or you? I pick Jesus. You may not recognize it. You might be so busy you've drowned it out. But the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. So I don't know if I'm Rick. I don't know if he's, I'm supposed to be Richard or Ricky. But he knows me by name. Only, only Joanne calls me Ricky. So. It's too much intimacy. All right. And Paul says, how is it? I mean, you could see the exasperation. How in the world are you turning back to weak and beggarly elements you came out of? Notice it says turn again. That doesn't mean turn again to the law because they never were under the law. So what are they turning again to? Religion. Because heathenism had observances, had ceremonies, had rites, it had, had uh, sacrifices, but so did the law. And he calls the law weak. You're wanting to return, you wanted to get under a system of the law, it's weak. The law was weak in that it was unprofitable because it could not make man right or perfect. The law, uh, under the law, you're giving up true power in Christ to the weakness of your own flesh. When you get under the law, it's all on you. It's your resources to live for God. Under grace, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ to empower you. So to go from grace to law is like going from driving a Lamborghini to walking. I'd rather not. I'm pious and holy. I'll walk. You're stupid. Get in the Lamborghini. No, I'll walk. I want to show God how serious I am. It's beggarly. Beggarly means destitute of wealth. Influence, position, honor. It means helpless. It means flat out broke. Religion and legalism turns you into a beggar. Not a son. It keeps you at the poverty level in every way. The Galatians were abandoning vast wealth for abject poverty. In the name of holiness and humility. I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better. I can do a whole lot more with money than I can with nothing. I can bless a whole lot more people with something than nothing. 
well, I'm just holy and righteous and, and all I care about is me. Oh, self-centered thing. You're going back to weak and beggarly elements. Look at the word elements. We saw this word earlier in the book, under the law. They were under the basic elements of the world. The word elements was used of the ABCs in kindergarten. It was the first blocks, building blocks, and it was used of the ABCs. It says the law was the ABCs. That's pictures and blocks, and you're learning just basic things through blocks and pictures and, and the ABCs and and so, so that's just religion. And it says you were un... So it says that... So these are the ABCs of religion. They had come out of religion. Before the Galatians were saved, they worshipped other gods by rituals and sacrifices. These rituals included worship at different seasons, new moons, and observation of certain days. They worshipped gods of the sky and earth and made animal sacrifice to them. Then the Galatians heard the simple gospel of grace got born again gloriously and have been enjoying a wonderful relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Judaizers came in and convinced them, no, if you really want to make advancement in holiness and purity, you need to take Judaism and you start observing Judaism. They said, well, sounds good to us. Under the law, Judaism, you had to observe rituals at the new moon and feast days and observe certain days. You ritually sacrificed certain animals. The essence, they were going back under the bondage of ritual-based religion and the weak and beggarly elements of the earth. The Galatians were considering dropping out of Grace University and re-enrolling in law kindergarten. Well, that's, I, I would never do that. Ha, huh. foolish Galatians. I was right, it was right he called them foolish, foolish Galatians. Hold on a second, hold on a second. I have a question for you. Can we today, or do we today, sometimes make Christianity into a religion? Can you make attending church services an observance of a ritual and have no relationship in it? Yes, you can. Can you read your Bible without relationship? Because mm -hmm. I'm committed to the daily Bible reading, and I have certain chapters. And so, and then, and it happens, you get behind. Instead of six chapters, you have 12. Well, bless God, i got to keep up. I feel guilty if I, I got behind. I'm guilty. And so you read, 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 Got it! <laughs> yeah, but you were blessed by that, weren't you? No relationship at all. Can you pray without relationship? Yes. Don't be the heathens. They just repeat the same thing over and over again. A lot of Christians get into religious praying. They have a monologue. I used to have, as a Christian, I would have a monologue. Where in my prayer line, I would pray the same thing every day, the same time, and I got bored by my prayers. I would fall asleep at my prayers. And I'd say, God, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to record this one. 
push play. I'm going to go do something fun because you can sit here and listen to it. And he says, son, I'm as bored as you are. And the Lord taught me if I'll start praying in the Holy Ghost first and then be sensitive for the impressions of the Spirit, my prayer life will go in a different direction. Paul actually says, I pray in the Spirit and I pray with my understanding. I would pray with my understanding and then run out of it, my monologue, in 10 minutes. And then I said, well, might as well pray in tongues. No, 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 go back. He started praying in tongues and then was led by the Spirit, and it took new vistas every time they prayed. It's called a relationship. You enjoy one another. A lot of Christians hate praying. It's religious. You think all this subconsciously gives you merit with God. Well, pastor, I don't think I'm into this. Well, it's sometimes harder to detect than you think of. Usually, what you believe in your heart goes to the surface once a fire is put underneath it. When trial hits your life and fire of, of trials and testings hits your life, your belief system and theology comes to the surface. It did for Job. We find out Job had a self-righteousness inside him. He thought God blessed him because he deserved it. And the trial hit his life and the surface. And you see more times, three friends don't have those three friends. The best thing they did was shut up for a week and just sit with them. But then they preached sermon after sermon trying to point out everything he did wrong to deserve it. And he says, I didn't do any of that. I, deserve, I don't deserve what I'm getting. I deserve better. And he lifted up at the end of Job and he says, God, I'm righteous and you're not. I don't deserve anything I'm getting. I deserve better than this. Ooh, self-righteousness came to the surface. God showed up in a whirlwind. Asked him a thousand questions with a string of zeros. And he says, I heard about you, but now I see you. In the light of seeing you, I don't deserve nothing. He says, bingo. I bless you because I'm good, not because you're good. And blessed him twice. You want to be Job? Get blessed twice. You can detect it in your prayer life when you're in trouble. You're facing a diagnosis. You can't seem to see that healing. And you say, Lord, I've gone to church and I paid my tithes. I volunteered. I pray. What else do you want from me? <laughs> Religion. Or, God, I promise you, I'll stop. I know I need to stop this. Please, I'll stop it if you'll do this. Oh, you're in performance. I'm not saying don't stop stupid stuff, but why do you do it? Because you are righteous, not because you're trying to get righteous. To which you desire again to be in bondage. You know the law looks very appealing to the flesh? Why? Because in religion you have the illusion of being in control while you profess that God's in control. Religion professes God's in control of everything, but ultimately in your heart, you're thinking you're in control. Why, why, why is that, Pastor? Religion promises that you can control God's response to you by your performance. 
You're in control. Change your performance, change what God does. Religion promises that you can be the reason for your blessings. The flesh likes it. Yeah. I'm the righteousness of God. Yeah. But you left Jesus out. Religion is all about self-improvement. One thing self loves is self-improvement. <laughs> Love likes to make self better or think that they're getting better. You know the most stupid, most popular section in a bookstore is? The self-help section. It's the most popular section in the book. Has the best. How stupid can you get and still breathe? That's stupid and ignorant having a child. Self needs help, so I'm going to self for help. Legalism looks like it's the way upwards, onwards, towards maturity and advancement, but all it does is it keeps you stuck like Chuck in the muck. And in bondage. A slave works and toils for their master. Under legalism, you work and work and work, and you don't get anything. Slaves don't have wages. They work and work and get nothing. It's like the elder brother in the prodigal story. And the son came home and got blessed by grace. And he sat on here and says, I slaved for you for years. And you've given me nothing. The Galatians were trading one set of chains under heathenism for another set of chains under the law. And giving up sonship. Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Notice you're, you're observing them. They've already left grace and have gone and bought Judaism and they're actually participating in Judaism. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Look at the word observe. This Greek word means to keep scrupulously. To neglect nothing requisite to the religious observance of something. Notice Paul said you're observing this. Under the law, you had to keep every ritual perfectly. For instance, the high priest on the Day of Atonement had certain sacrifices he had to do in a certain order. If he messed up one little bit and forgot something, guess what? He did a face plant in the, in the Holy of Holies. Dead. Matter of fact, they would tie a rope around his ankle to drag the dude out. You had to do everything perfectly and say everything perfectly to get God to respond to you. But have we made our life any better? Often we act that way in our own walk with the Lord. We're afraid that if we don't do everything right or say everything right, if our confession isn't perfect, I'm not saying that our words aren't important. But are your words the reason for God blessing you? Or is it Jesus? Often we act in a way in our own walk with the Lord. We're afraid that if, afraid. We're afraid. Religion is fear, basically. We're afraid that if we don't do everything right or say everything right, 
or if we've missed a step, that God will withhold from us and even worse, punish us. Remember this, guys. Jesus did everything right for us and as us. Everything. He did not miss anything. He didn't mess up once. He was perfect, and his perfection is the standard by which God accepts and moves in your life. So are you trusting in you, or are you trusting in Jesus' perfection? And you can tell when a trial and a trouble hits your life what you're trusting in. You observe days. This means they, reserve, they, they, uh, they observed certain fast days. They observed Sabbath days. When was the Sabbath, the, the Jewish Sabbath? Saturday. No football on Saturday, guys. No ESPN. No, no working, no, no, side, no playing, no going out on your boat. No. You sat at home and you just thought about the Lord and you got to visit temple, but... On Saturday, Sabbath day, you think I'm more holy on Sunday, on Saturday, than I am any other day. You know that you're not any more holy for coming regularly to church on Sundays or any other day than you are on Monday? Why are you coming to church? Well, it's a Christian thing to do. This is not a question, you go to church. No, no, why are you? See, it's not what you're doing. It's why you're doing it. I'm not saying church attendance is wrong. Please come to church. I hate to say, where did everybody go? They're all gone, bless the Lord. I'm righteous and holy and I'm at home. I'm not saying that. Why are you here? Is it because of relationship? I want to learn more about Jesus. And, how he, and what he's done for me. I want to enter into a relationship. I want to have a relationship with my brothers and sisters. That's why I'm coming. Not to check a box. Because I feel so guilty if I miss church. Why? Why? Religion. Is it wrong to celebrate certain days like Easter and Christmas? No. But, it, but you're to remember what the Lord has done on those days. It's not that you perform them to get something from God. They say you observe months. That's the monthly sacrifices made at the new moons. The next are you observe seasons. That is the feast days on certain seasons. Passover, Pentecost, tabernacles. They were going back and observing Passover. Where they feel like, i got to do the Passover meal just right for God to move in my life and be happy with me. Guys, I'm all fine for you to celebrate Passover. There's called the Seder meal. If you understand every aspect pictures Jesus in it, you can enjoy it and enjoy what Jesus has done for you. But you're not any more holier for doing it. It shows you that you are holy because of Jesus. Why are you doing what you're doing? Next it says years. This is the sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee. I don't observe a year of Jubilee every 50th year because I would have had it five years ago. Some of you are not even old enough to, have, to celebrate Jubilee. But I celebrate Jubilee every day because Jesus is my Jubilee. See, all these things were shadows, ABCs, pictures, blocks, Things to the religion. 
But Jesus is the substance, and it's called relationship. Are you in rituals or relationship? Verse 11. Paul says, I'm afraid for you. Actually, I love the King James translation. The King James says, I'm afraid of you. You know what? Religious people, I'm scared of you. You're bitter, judgmental, unhappy with everything, always criticizing what everybody's doing. Why? Because that's how your relationship with God is. I'm afraid of you. But, but here in this translation, New King James, I'm afraid for you. Why? It's a fearful thing to turn from faith in Christ and, as your righteousness and start trusting in your own works as your righteousness. It's a fearful thing. You're left all out on your own, folks. You are on dangerous ground. Lest I've labored for you in vain. You know, it's possible to make the finished work of Christ vain in your life by stop trusting in what Jesus did and start trusting in what you're doing. It's empty. It's vain. He, not, not for anybody else, but for you it is. Amen. And I'm going to end with this. Well, Pastor, practically help me, help me apply this. Do you know most people's relationship with God the Father mirrors their relationship with their natural father? Now, praise God if you had a great father growing up that was there for you, loved you, hugged you, gave you a kiss and, and, and talked to you and just really loved you, but maybe you didn't have a father like that. Maybe he was distant. Maybe he was absent totally altogether. Maybe even he was harsh or beat you. And so often we put that over on God as, as a, that's how God is in my life, and I have difficulty in my relationship. Jesus is cool. Like the Holy Spirit, kind of, I don't know where he is, but Jesus, I kind of, but the Father, mm, no, no, no. I'd rather not opt out. I'll just kind of have a distance with him. No, he wants you to have, know him so much you can call him Abba. And what's clouded, the lens, you have a lens, you're seeing God through your natural father. And the way you're going to get free from that is to forgive your father. I'll never forgive him. He hurt me deeper than any other human being. And I can't forgive him. Let me help you a little bit. Why was he like that? Because he didn't have From his dad and from God, he didn't have it. And you can't give what you don't have. Let the compassion of Christ rise up to him. Forgive him. Release him to God. And then that lens, that block to where you can actually start seeing your father as he really is. He loves you so much. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the word of God. And Father, some in this room needs to make a decision that they're going to forgive their natural father. And if that's you, it's not a process. It's a decision. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. I forgive you, Father. Dad, I forgive you. And I release you into the hands of God. You didn't have a relationship either. 
And Father, show me who you really are so I can be loved and be the beloved of God so I can be loved like you want me to love you. And I thank you for doing that in the name of Jesus. Amen. I really find there's some in this room that need to act on this. There's something tangible that takes pl- will take place in your heart. I'm going to act on this. So if this is the message, I, you know, I need to release my dad to the Lord. And I, I want to experience you in a whole new way as my father. If that's you, I'd like you to actually make a step of action of faith and come up here to the front. And the Lord wants to really do a work in your life. So if that's you, you can come. If you haven't done so, you need to verbalize this. Dad, I choose to forgive you for everything you did and you didn't do. I release you to Jesus. I forgive you. It means to release. Forgive means to release. I release you to God. And I forgive you. You didn't have a relationship either. And I release you. I forgive you. And I just cancel ungodly words that have been spoken over you or spoken to your heart that has caused you to have a picture of yourself but does not line up with the word of God. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that right now you're just bringing things to their remembrance. You're revealing things, beliefs, experiences that led to a wrong image of who we are. I cancel those words in the name of Jesus. And I encourage you to get into the word of God and to see who God is for real. He's perfect. He's loving. He's good. And find out what he says about you. That's who you are. That's your image. That's who you are. You're created in his image for his glory, for his purposes, for kingdom purposes. And I just cancel those lies in the name of Jesus. And I just release the fullness of who God created you to be. I release you to be exactly who God created you to be. There's no limit. There's no ceiling on you that was placed on you. You are free indeed because Jesus set you free. You are free to be who God created you to be in Jesus' name. As I was standing back there watching the women and men being prayed for and surrendering everything that was going on, I realized that I needed to forgive the perpetrator, which was my spouse, my husband. And I sense that there are other people here, wives and husbands, that need to forgive their spouse that perpetrated on their child. So right now, if that's you, raise your hand, close your eyes, and say, Father God, I release and forgive my husband, my wife. I forgive them. In Jesus' name.